Welcome to Decoding Superhuman. This show is a deep dive into obsessions with health, performance, and how to elevate the human experience. I explore the latest tools, science, and technology with experts in various fields of human optimization. This is your host, Boomer Anderson. Enjoy the journey. Today on the podcast, we're going to step on the other side of that intersection between health and business. And we're going to talk about negotiation, personal negotiation, business negotiation, how to structure negotiations, how to get the most out of a deal, how to really play the game that is negotiation. And I asked my guest today to bring really good tactics, tips, tools that you can use to become a a better negotiator immediately. So who better to teach us to be a better negotiator than Stanford Law School professor David Johnson? He's been teaching negotiation at Stanford Law School annually since 2006, has a full-time practice in Silicon Valley from 1996, and he has this amazing course, which we actually didn't even get into today, called Negotiation by Design. David has worked in biotech, he's worked in tech, he's worked as a general counsel, a COO, and he has a wealth of experience which he brings into this conversation. I can't wait for you guys to listen to it. David's full bio is at decodingsuperhuman.com slash negotiation, but let's get on with the show. As a technology fiend, I get a number of different gadgets. In fact, I switch quite often. If you were to ask me what I'm wearing, using, buying this month, it may be completely different next month. But the ones that stick, the technologies that I use every day or frequently are few and far between. And when it comes to transcranial and intranasal photobiomodulation, my device of choice is the V-Lite. And I know a lot of you superhumans out there love the V-Lite as well. The V-Lite, I stick it up my nose, I put it on my head, and I go into an absolute relaxation mode with my NeuroAlpha in, well, let's just say by the time I'm done my meditation 20 minutes later. It's fantastic. It enhances my meditations. It makes my sleep better. And like I say, it's one of the few devices that I'll throw into a carry-on bag and travel with. You can get yours by listening to this podcast, going to the show notes or heading over to vlight.com, that's V-I-E-L-I-G-H-T, and using the code BOOMER to get yourself 10% off. Let's get back to my conversation. David, this is an absolute pleasure. And I know uh, you and I have had a couple of conversations and have a mutual interest in another country, but thank you for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. What brought you to Singapore of all places? (laughs) Um, So my wife works for a tech company in Silicon Valley, um, a fairly big, a, what I would call a monstrous unicorn. I'm not going to name it, but a global FinTech monster unicorn. So maybe I just named it. (laughs) (laughs) There's only a handful of those. (laughs) Yeah, there really are. And so, uh, they were expanding their APAC presence, and uh, she agreed to go do a year or two out in Singapore to help them build out. And so I gladly hopped on board and went along. Uh, 
it was at the end of a four-year run for me in a nonprofit foundation as a GC. So it was a good time to check out. Four years is a, and partly because of option, you know, uh, plans, four years seems to be a number in Silicon Valley that's a really comfortable, okay, I'm going to punch out and move on Mm -hmm. or peace out, I should say, is probably the better phrase, peace out and move on to the next thing. Uh, And moving on to the next thing is, is, honestly, uh, one of the biggest blessings of working in Silicon Valley, because I know there are other places, other companies where, particularly if you're a lawyer, there's sort of a dim view taken of moving too much. Mm -hmm. But that's not the case in Silicon Valley. It just isn't. Uh, If you're good, you're supposed to move a lot. Mm -hmm. So anyway, we went to Singapore. uh, And I had a blast. We had a blast. Uh, She worked hard. It was very successful. And uh, we got a lot of travel in because Singapore is very centrally located. You can yeah. go to a bunch of different places uh, on very short flights. Mm-hmm. Uh, we went out there in August 2019. And so we had a solid six months before uh, COVID came in. Mm-hmm. And uh, curiously, uh, I was scheduled, in fact, did get on a plane and come back to the States to teach in February 2020. Uh, and I taught my course at the uh, D school at Stanford, uh, which we'll probably talk about a little bit more later. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was the last day of uh, the night before my last class that Stanford shut down because of COVID. Um, and I had to do my last class online. And then I bought the first ticket out of town <laughs> to Singapore uh, on the, th- on it. well, because I had to leave anyway, but to be honest, because Singapore, I just knew in my my gut was going to be much safer place to be to ride out COVID. And I didn't want to take the risk of getting shut out of going back because mm-hmm. uh, I'm, I'm an expat. So I rushed back to Singapore, did the last class online from Singapore, and then we went into COVID shutdown, uh, which was very effective. I don't need to tell you that you know, Singapore did it as well as almost anybody in the world. Yeah. They had certain advantages. And um uh, and they got through it and came back out the, the other end roughly in July 2020 and have been running fairly normally since then. Schools open, people out, restaurants open, et cetera, since July 2020. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, Singapore was a great experience. And, and what I tell anybody who's willing to listen is uh, even if it's later in your career, if you get an opportunity to truly go live and immerse yourself uh in your job overseas, I think it's really a valuable experience. Uh, and I also happen, I tell younger people, including students, that uh, doing a year or two overseas is an incredible plus on your resume. Yeah. When people look at resumes, when I did it, when I was reading hundreds of resumes in hiring, I always, always took a close look at people who uh, had spent some time overseas. It, there's just a lot of reasons why that makes a, a, a potential employee pretty attractive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I was fortunate enough to get sent over there uh, to Singapore when I was 25 and thought it was going to be two years. And then I got left on Gilligan's Island and was there for <laughs> six now in Amsterdam for four. And it's just, you know, at some point it's like, do you do you come back? Uh, but we'll see how it goes. Um but this is that's funny you mentioned Amsterdam. I was looking at the, the of all things, I looked at the Zoom inv- invite and I saw the invite was in Am- Amsterdam time. And I thought, <laughs> wait a minute, 
I didn't know Boomer was in Amsterdam. Uh, uh, my hit, I, my I, hidden I, surprise here. There you go. <laughs> yeah, boom, so to speak. So you know, I've I spent uh, one of my uh, favorite weeks of tr- of European travel in Amsterdam. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the combination of really great weather. Uh, That's a rare one in the season when people come out and. You know, you have to learn how to ride a bike quick, or you're or you're going to be the bane of of uh, Dutch society. Yeah. But once you learn, <laughs> and they don't mess around with the rules of the road on bikes. No, sure. it's uh, it's an art, and it's yeah. definitely a. It's one of those things. It's a skill. I'm not sure I'll put it on my resume, but it's a skill that everybody should learn at some point. Yeah, well, I guess you know the takeaway there is. Pro tip, if you go even as a tourist to Amsterdam for a few days, you're going to get on a bike. Please make sure you know how to uh, make sure you learn what the specific rules of riding a bike in Amsterdam or Utrecht are. Yeah, because it'll make all the difference. (laughs) It'll make all the difference. It makes it easy. It makes the city very easy to navigate. It could also make it very painful. Uh, literally painful. Yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, David, we're going to talk about negotiation today, and right. uh, we're going to get into so many different things because I, I know you have a, a long history in this. But I wanted to give people a sense of that history because you mentioned you you spent four years in a nonprofit, and the, four years is sort of this nice cadence in Silicon Valley. But mm. you've you've also done quite a number of other things in your life, and I would just like to give everybody listening a little bit of a sense of that as well. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's good to do because negotiations are fairly personal and sort of individually specific art. Mm-hmm. And so, for people who are going to when I when I want to learn from an expert negotiator giving a talk, I do want to know from what background they come because it influences the way that they view negotiation. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I started my legal career in Miami as a uh, trial lawyer in the mostly in the downtown courthouse of Miami, Florida in the eighties. And it was a wild time. That's a very interesting time to be in Miami. It's a very interesting time to be in Miami. You know, uh, you actually do bump into Don Johnson and Philip Michael Thomas on the street in restaurants, kicking around. Uh, it, it was kind of new and different for us in Miami because it was just becoming sort of uh, the international city. In fact, they it developed a phrase for Miami after a while uh, in the 80s as the northernmost city of South America, which gives you a sense of really the milieu. So uh, I learned to, to try jury trials uh, and appeals in Miami. So my negotiation chops were begun in conflict resolution in negotiating uh, litigation. Uh, I didn't do criminal, just negotiating civil litigation, uh, pretty much hardball civil litigation. Um, after 10 years in Miami, I came back to the West Coast. Uh, I was born and raised in Seattle, so I knew I was coming back to the West Coast sooner or later. Mm-hmm. Uh, went back to school took another degree, uh, was interested in going into professional academics, but instead went back to work uh, for a variety of reasons in Silicon Valley, uh, which was a different kind of practice. And very quickly, I'd say within two or three years, I ended up working as uh, general counsel for a uh, startup, uh, an overfunded 
uh, startup company in the boom era Mm -hmm. of 99, 2000, 2001. And from that point forward, have done serial GC jobs, I think four or five of them. Profit, for-profit companies, not-for-profit, public and private, and um, got a good mix of uh, subject areas, mostly technology, a little bit of design, and um, then decided I was going to back into teaching, and uh, which has always been part-time, but I put a lot of energy and attention into it. Uh, so I started teaching at Stanford Law School negotiation at Stanford Law School, I'd say about 10 years ago, maybe Mm -hmm. 12 years ago now, and uh, started teaching at the design school about five years ago uh, by creating a course, um, blending negotiation and design thinking to uh, explore new ways to think about uh, negotiation. Wow. Okay. Um, So, there's a, there's a lot of ways we can go down this this conversation, especially sure. uh, just in terms of that, that combination that you mentioned at the end is, yeah. is fascinating to me, uh, especially as somebody who both lives with a designer and has some experience with design thinking. But uh, just so we kind of lay our parameters straight for everybody, when it mm. comes to negotiation, you mentioned in our email exchange, we all know the basics, but I just want to make sure that people are clear uh, on yeah. uh, just sort of what those basics are, because, uh, you know, some people make their their livings out of being, quote unquote, good negotiators. And obviously they need some foundations to that. And so what are those foundations to good negotiation or the basics, if you will? Yeah, so there's there's a lot of ways you can kind of come at that question. So I'll take one path, uh, not necessarily in preference to another. Mm-hmm. Um, the way I like to think about it is in the world of negotiation, I very roughly divide uh, types of negotiation into conflict resolution in one bucket and deal making in another bucket. Mm-hmm. Now, Someone will say, oh, but conflict resolution is deal-making. Conflict resolution, yes, ultimately ends up in an agreement, which you could call a deal. When I say deal-making, I'm referring to companies or individuals who are uh, arriving at an agreement, uh, whether it's a partnership or strategic partnership, uh, acquisition, some some sort of commercial, usually a commercial deal that ends up with them working together uh, for a significant period of time. Mm-hmm. That's what I mean by deal-making, as opposed to conflict resolution, which is almost always a, not always, but almost always a one-off where the parties resolve their conflict, arrive at an agreement, a settlement of some sort, dismiss a case often, and go their separate ways mm-hmm. because they just do not, they are not interested in being partners with one another yeah. for obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of the first division. Um, the second is, related, which is uh, distributive, what we call distributive or integrative in the lingo, but basically a a zero-sum fixed pie negotiation, Mm -hmm. which is usually, but not always, conflict resolution. Um, It could be a buy-sell. So if I'm buying your used car, uh, every dollar I get you to concede is a dollar in my pocket and vice versa. So that's a... uh, a 
purchase, straight up purchase negotiation, oftentimes zero sum fixed pie and a little bit more competitive to boot. That's a distributive negotiation where you're distributing a fixed set of assets, usually money. Integrative is a squishy term, but in broad, it uh, refers to most any negotiation where there's a potential for the parties working together to create more value than might first appear to exist. Mm -hmm. And by creating more value, they can then distribute that value between them uh, in the process of doing the deal. Uh, And that is where you hear the all too common phrase of win-win. Both Mm -hmm. parties do better than when they first started. So I think of zero sum or growing the pie negotiation I think of conflict resolution and I think of uh, uh, deal making. And I don't necessarily put those in a a two by two matrix, but those are the buckets. And the reason the buckets are important, and they're pretty obvious, don't get me wrong. Um, The reason I think they're important is because how you proceed once you've identified which kind of negotiation you're in um, is driven by the type of negotiation you're in. the next basic for me that I really uh, teach pretty aggressively and the book that I use for basic class, uh, Richard Shell's book, Bargaining for Advantage, yeah. uh, really drives this point home. Uh, Richard calls his uh, style of teaching negotiation information-based bargaining. Mm-hmm. Now, we all know knowledge is power, information, et cetera, et cetera, is important. But when it comes down to the craft of negotiation... Um, how you manage information is really where the extraordinarily good negotiators tend to surpass the, the merely uh, mediocre negotiators. Mm-hmm. What do I mean by that? So we have a very simple phrase. It's, it's going to sound simplistic, in fact, but it, but it covers the point. Um, and that phrase is give, guard, get. Mm-hmm. Give, guard, get. Uh, I tend to envision negotiation as sort of this, uh, I visualize it as a sphere uh, into which all of the information relevant to a negotiation does or could exist. Some information I'm going to put into that sphere myself. That's the information I want the other side to have mm-hmm. because it helps my case. I'm going to put information, I'm going to give information to the other side. I'm going to do it somewhat strategically so it doesn't look like I'm just dumping. I want to meet it out in you know small increments and usually do that by way of trading for information they're giving me. But both parties are going to give information to one another voluntarily because it help, they believe it helps them. Mm-hmm. Then there's information that I want to get from the other side. There there are holes in my understanding and I need information from them. Sometimes the information I want to get, they'll give to me. Most of the time, they're going to guard it. And likewise, vice versa. There's information I have that I don't want to give up and I'm going to guard that information. So where now, now we've talked about giving information and getting information, the real action is in each side's guarded information. Mm-hmm. Now, this is where you take the next step and uh, uh, focus on skill in 
getting the other side, acquiring the information from the other side that they may not want to give up. Mm -hmm. And there's two ways sort of that this surfaces. One is there's information they have that they're ethically obligated to disclose or they're committing fraud if they don't disclose it. And then there's information that they're ethically not required to disclose that they can withhold legally. Um, but you might still be able to tease out of them mm-hmm. uh, if you persuade them that it's in their self-interest to part with that information. And sort of this narrow band in the middle of the information gathering process, uh, getting more information from the other side that they don't want you to have versus how much you give um, is where also another place where the really great negotiators succeed. And another basic uh, that I always like that there's a chart in uh, Shell's book that's, that uh, speaks to speaking and listening. Mm-hmm. He did a study or he speaks about a study that was done and he found that uh, the more expert negotiators spend a lot more time listening than they do speaking during a negotiation. And that speaks volumes in its own right, but where an expert negotiator really succeeds is when they're working against someone who's a little less experienced. The less experienced negotiator by default feels like they have to say a lot of words, make a lot of argument, talk a lot to try and bolster their position, present themselves as having a very strong position. And the downside to doing that is a really good expert negotiator will read that person like a deck of cards. And there will be so much information that will be gleaned from what that person chooses to say that listening is in itself just listening is in itself a way to gather uh, information that the other side inadvertently uh, lets slide over the rail. Um, All right. Yeah. I, so I think that covers what I would consider to be, you know, the 10 minute primer on the basics. <laughs> well, thank you for all of that. And I, I think there's a number of different avenues that we can go down there uh, yeah. and uh, just Perhaps we can go through a couple of things and just from personality wise, one of the last things you yeah. just mentioned was the art of being a good listener. And mm-hmm. tangentially, some of the things that you said reminded me of like games of poker, uh, where you start to be able to mm-hmm. read some person. Uh, what are some of those characteristics that that good negotiators develop in terms of listening, but observing in these people? What If somebody is too verbose, and giving away too much information. Are there specific things that you're looking for in order to emphasize, or is it just sort of a matter of feel when you're in conversation with that person? Um, Well, I would say it starts with a matter of feel, but if you can, uh, it segues from, this is interesting. It's this whole another area that I find fascinating about negotiation when I compare it to my work as a trial lawyer. Um, most beginner or intermediate, let's say, negotiators come to a negotiation thinking that the communication in a negotiation 
is essentially the same as a conversation. It is not, and it is a categorical mistake to think that you're just going into a negotiation and you're going to have a conversation about the subject matter and somehow you're going to succeed as a negotiator. It's a, sty- it's a very different, highly stylized kind of, co- of communication. I may drop the word conversation because it appears to be a conversation and the really good negotiator will make it feel like it's just a conversation. Oh, hey, let's sit down, talk this out, see what's going on. I wanna understand how you feel about this this situation and maybe we can work something out that'll, that'll be beneficial to both of us. That feels like uh, you know, a, negoti- a, a conversation and it's a trap. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'm, I, I remember, I'm thinking of that Star Wars gif in my mind every time I say that phrase, it's a trap. So, uh, you know, the expert will almost lull the, the beginner to sleep with that, with that kind of preface. But in fact, what they're trying to do is get the other side just simply to start talking. Yeah. And then as they start talking, if they start, if they show poor discipline, in controlling the amount of information that they're letting out, then what the expert will do is one of two things, and this is going to segue into timing, mm-hmm. um, is they will do what I call juggle in silence, which is they'll take each nugget of information that they find use, new and useful that this other person is giving them, and they will sort of put it in their mental juggle. And they'll keep these 6, 8, 10, 12, 15, 18 nuggets of information kind of up in the air, in very much in the forefront of their mind. And there's a reason for that. So hold that thought. So they're juggling in their mind these pieces of information as they flow. And what, they're, what they don't want to do, the expert, is interrupt the rhythm of the person who's disclosing information. Yeah. You know, the old saying is, you know, when your opponent's beating themselves, get out of the way. Uh, and some negotiators will tend to, when they hear the first or second nugget of new information, they'll, they'll go, oh, I'm going to pounce. Go, oh, what do you mean? I got you. you. You just admitted that thus and such. And then the other person freezes up and go, and, and kind of comes back to consciousness and says, oh, shh, oh. Excuse me. You, you can curse here. Don't worry. <laughs> I can. Oh, shit. I just screwed up. Yeah. Right. And then they lock up and you've lost that opportunity. Uh, you've, you've basically broken their own self-destructive flow in the negotiation, as it were. Mm-hmm. And so that's the benefit of juggling uh, as much as possible while they're going. Sooner or later, they're going to stop. They're going to come to their senses or, or you're going to have to inquire. But then when you decide... Well, they've given me, let's say they've given me eight pieces of information in the last 12 minutes, um, and I feel very lucky to have accumulated these. Which one of these eight do I want to put out and take a deeper dive on? Now that they so so my response to you might be, but it's interesting about five minutes ago you said something about uh, you know, the the I'll just use an example from my world. Uh, the prior art search that you did on this particular patent that you're telling me about that you think is bulletproof. And uh, you've got six applications going in a bunch of different countries, which is great. I'm, you know, that's a real asset. Uh, but tell me a little bit more about that prior art search, because it sounded to me like you're not comfortable that it could survive challenge. 
And so then I pick one, what just strategically, uh, and and take a deeper dive on it, and and then try again, and basically try to iterate the process and get them to start opening up about this topic that they've now given me. Mm-hmm. And so I'm iterating themselves against themselves. Mm-hmm. It's something that trial lawyers do uh, very effectively, usually uh, on cross examination. Mm-hmm. Is that they get a witness to they can trap a witness with a decision tree, a question tree. It's the same thing as a decision tree, except it's questions. You know which answer you're going to get. Yes, no, it takes you here. Yes, no, it takes you here. And then you can elicit a conclusion based on that tree. And then you can say, okay, now based on this conclusion, because right, you just admitted X. Um, and then you can press them on X, which you didn't have before you began. Mm-hmm. And so your structure gets you to X on a cross exam. And in this instance, listening gets you to X and then you have a nugget that you can work with and you can play with. Um, and the idea of going back to the idea of juggling your nuggets, uh, that sounds kind of weird. Juggling your <laughs> modules. <laughs> well, I, I was going to, I was going to say something like, how do you choose your nuggets? So that's going to be, <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the, the, to, to be honest in a negotiation, you know, because you prepared well enough yeah. in your negotiation, you know exactly what bits of information are gold. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're, we're juggling gold nuggets and you pick one to talk about at that moment, which means by definition, you're saving the others. Mm-hmm. And then the question is, how do you sequence the others yeah. in a way that uh, is most advantageous to you? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, th- this is the point where talking about negotiation theoretically or in a vacuum has to stop and it requires a factual based context to be able to say, you know, what you would do going forward from there. Mm-hmm. But it, it does tee up the notion of timing. Uh, I'm a big advocate of the idea that, uh, that when you do say, do or say something in a negotiation is as important, often as important as what you do or say in the negotiation, mm-hmm. because too many young negotiators, lawyers in particular, who have prepared fully and they've got their arguments all laid out. When they go into a negotiation, the first thing they want to do is, I want to say my piece. I want to make my argument. I want to, particularly if my client is there, I want to show my client that I'm here and I'm going to make their case. And that I prepared. (laughs) That I prepared Mm -hmm. and that I am prepared. And I'm going to make the other side sit and listen to our argument, to our opening statement. And by doing that, I'm going to change their mind. Mm-hmm. That is, is that a just beginner's that, mistake. Is that a just 100% mistake. the wrong thing to do? Right? 90%, 90% of the time, it would be the wrong thing to do. Okay. Some contexts, you might want to do that, but it, it would be, you'd have to make a conscious strategic decision that that's the way you're going to go. Mm-hmm. But generally speaking, uh, you can deploy that argument across an entire day or two or three days of negotiation. Mm -hmm. There's no reason to start and just use the first half hour of the negotiation to deploy that argument. Your argument probably will improve across two or three days if you engage in the information exchange part first uh, and get more information, because then what you're looking for is information that supports your argument. There's nothing more persuasive in the courtroom uh, and every trial lawyer will tell you this. There is nothing more persuasive in any courtroom, criminal or civil, 
than a statement from the opponent that fits your argument and helps your argument mm-hmm. because it is, well, for, it's, it's obvious whether it's a judge or a jury, they're going to say, well, wait a minute, his argument incorporates the, the story he's telling incorporates admissions and statements and evidence from the other side. It has much, it's much more muscular in its appearance of truth mm-hmm. than if it's just something I have crafted as an argument or a story. Mm-hmm. I'll stop there for a sec. I, know, I, I think you're going on a, a very good point here around timing and just what I want to get in a little bit to the, that overplaying component of it. And mm. some of the things that you've mentioned to me in our email exchange is um, let's take, and I want to define overplaying a little bit here too. So if I overplay as your opponent, let's say we're sitting across the table together, is an overplaying giving you too much information? Um, is an overplay uh, is an overplay just sort of demanding too much of you or just sitting down and laying out the arguments all up front? Is that an overplay in that case? Or what, what exactly would an overplay be? I think overplay is more mental than it is physical, which is to say, you know, if somebody comes in and is loud and boisterous and competitive and argumentative, that to me isn't necessarily overplaying. Mm-hmm. I don't personally like that style, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're overplaying. Overplaying is extending your position beyond uh, uh, what it can support. Mm-hmm. Uh, the classic analogy is going too far out on the branch of the tree. Uh your your argument has a certain amount of weight, but the more you extend it out the branch, the less support it has. The sooner or later, it's going to break the branch and fall to the ground. So I've got a, you know, I, I'll, I'll tell a story without disclosing company names that to me was, is an example of uh, several aspects of, mm-hmm. you know, in the fire negotiations. Um, so years ago, uh, and some of this is public information. So, and, and none of it is attorney client privilege. Um, years ago, I represented a, uh, large, uh, pharmaceutical and medical device distribution distribution company that had done a deal with a small medical device company. Uh, a startup in Silicon Valley. And they did a major contract, 10-year distribution agreement, lots of investment. Uh, It was a real partnership. Mm -hmm. And everything went fine until the product didn't sell. It just didn't sell for a variety of reasons. And uh, we severed the agreement uh, because certain representations about the product had not been met. And the other side sued us. So uh, for a lot of money. So accelerate to uh, just after the litigation had been filed and parties are starting to line up discovery, the parties agree to meet to have a negotiation to see if they can resolve this. And curiously, this this was the first time this had happened to me. I know it happens a lot. 
One company's on the East Coast of the US, one's on the West Coast of the US. So they decide all the principals are going to hop on a plane and fly out to Chicago, of course, to O'Hare Airport. And unbeknownst to me, that's where I don't know which hotel chain it is, but one major hotel has their hotel in O'Hare Airport. And they have, it's really interesting something on the order of 50 or 60 conference rooms. (laughs) How many many deals get done there a year? (laughs) Yes, exactly. And uh, they have automated electronic signage in all the conference rooms. And you can just reserve a main conference room. You reserve breakout rooms, the whole nine yards. And you just come in, you stay at the hotel, you do your negotiations, and then you part ways. And, And so in that way, it was really convenient. So we all got together and met for the first night of what was supposed to be two or maybe three days worth of negotiation. Now, interestingly, the other side's lawyer uh, called us up, I don't know, two or three nights, uh, two or three days before the meeting and said, uh, actually it wasn't the lawyer, it it was the president of the company called us up and said, our side is going to, our lawyers are going to make a presentation that the night we get there, we have a two hour uh, meeting. Our lawyer is going to make a presentation. We think your lawyer should come make a presentation. And I was that lawyer for the defendant. And I told my boss, I said, no. They go, what? Why not? I said, they've been working on this presentation for two months. And they're the ones who asked for this meeting. They are trying to corner us into a substandard product with insufficient information mm-hmm. and try and create an asymmetrical appearance of closing of basically two opening statements at trial, but they have this enormous advantage. The way that we counter that is to refuse to do this, do the statement. And we're not going to say why, and we're going to sit there and listen very politely and listen to what they have to say. And we're going to ask no questions. And I, I said this very clearly and just, you know, young lawyer saying to president, general counsel, VP of sales of a major company, uh, you are not going to ask any questions. You're going to, no matter what they say, you're going to show no reaction. You're going to nod, say, thank you very much. We'll see you tomorrow morning. Mm-hmm. And so the trial lawyer, uh, a really brand name, nationally known intellectual property trial lawyer comes in. Sure enough, he does his dog and pony show. And we're watching the slides and we're watching the talk and he makes a, he presents a case and, and closes with a demand for, if I remember correctly, compensatory plus some punitive damages in the amount of, I want to say two, two and a half billion dollars, which was wildly, wildly, wildly out of proportion of what this deal was really all about. And I could see my guys getting really nervous and getting very angry. But to their credit, they did exactly what they were supposed to. And that we had a meeting after everybody broke, we had a meeting and they said, okay, well, what are we going to do tomorrow? I said, I'll, ha- I'll tell you tomorrow morning. I was sweating bullets. Mm-hmm. But I went back to the room and I just strategized and I realized that they had overplayed their hand. Mm-hmm. And uh, I did a little research on the internet. I came up with my strategy. We went back in the next morning and I said, guys, they're asking for 1.2, 1.4 
that is coming to me. I think it was about 1.4 billion in damages for our breaching a contract with them. I went online last night. This is a public company that's trading on the pink sheets at 98 cents per share. And I looked at their uh, latest uh, 10K and they list assets, 37 patents or so. Some of them they own, some of them had exclusive licenses, all of which are transferable. Mm-hmm. And I argue, I, I ballparked the value of those patents and I, and I did some back of the envelope math. And I said to the president of the company, I said, you could probably go onto the market and buy this company somewhere between 15 and $20 million. Yeah and own the assets of the company, lock, stock, and barrel, and whatever uh, pension plan they might have, and terminate everybody, take the assets, and kill the litigation. I said, I'm not suggesting you should do that, but this now prices the deal. And because they have overreached so egregiously This is a story we could also tell the jury uh, about what the real value of this company is and how can the damages for litigation exceed the value of the company. And so he got all excited. He goes, this is great stuff. Uh, Let me go in there and talk to the other other side. Right now, I said, no. You're going to go have a one-on-one meeting with the the president of the plaintiff's company, but you're not going to do it first thing in the morning. I want you to go in there and play dumb and let him extend and adopt and extend the the president, adopt and extend the argument that his lawyer made all through the morning session. Break for lunch, go back after lunch, and then you you drop the bomb on him. He played it exactly that way. So we had these guys extended out on the branch, but that was the lawyer speaking. If my guy went in the first thing in the morning, then the president says, well, that's my lawyer speaking. He doesn't know what he's talking about. I'm going to fire him as soon as he hears the argument and realizes the trouble he's in. So we then let the president of the company also go out on the branch with the theory and attach himself to that theory. Mm. And cognitive bias tells us that when people make an argument um, publicly, meaning to someone, some other person or to the world, they are biased to defend that position rather than admit they're wrong. Sunk cost fallacy, right? Sorry? It's like the sunk cost fallacy. You've already made it. Yes. So you're just going to fall fall yeah. forward again. It's, yeah. it's uh, it, that's just a, yeah, sunk cost is the same cognitive bias. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to get the president, the decision maker on the litigation, all completely bought in as well. So when after lunch, the president went in, our guy went in and spent about an hour and a half and they came out and <laughs> and uh, they said, okay, we're done. The other guy, uh, you know, uh, looked like, I don't know, Casey at the bat walking away from the plate. Mm-hmm. But uh, we reconvened at about four that afternoon and they they had reached a settlement for something like uh, 0.04% of their demand <laughs> to make the case go away. 
and we all met again at the at the conference table and uh it, you know let's face it i'm telling you a story where i was central to the victory but the reason the story to me is so powerful is i didn't have a clue going in to that evening session the night before what was going to happen or what my leverage would ultimately become, but the leverage came from the other side's overplay. Mm -hmm. Then once I saw that, it became a matter of timing things in a way where the new information would have optimal value. Mm -hmm. You know, in a pick your sport in tennis, it's well known that there are certain points that are more valuable than others. Mm -hmm. And the most valuable point in tennis, by the way, and this is told to me by Billie Jean King herself. I assume it's still true in the modern game. Sorry, Billie. Um, <laughs> is the point before break point. Mm. It, if the most important, the most valuable thing you can do is break oppos- your, your opponent's serve. Mm-hmm. That's how you win get matches. The way you break opponent's serve is to get a break point. But you have to earn the break point to get to break point. So the point that gets you to a break point is the most valuable point in tennis. And uh, so you have to do things differently when you're in that point because of the weight that's on uh, on winning that point. Same thing with a baseball pitcher uh, who has a strikeout pitch. Mm-hmm. You can't show the strikeout pitch. It doesn't have any value to you until you have two strikes on. Then when you have two strikes on your strikeout pitch, the valuation of that pitch goes up 1000%. Mm-hmm. And so it's a matter of timing. It could be, you could be the third pitch. It could be the 12th pitch of the at bat before you can pull that one out of your pocket and have it play. That takes me back to you're juggling silently uh, for, for lack of a better phrase, these nuggets of gold or your strikeout pitches. And you're waiting for the right optimal time to throw that pitch. Uh, And that makes all the difference in negotiation because ultimately negotiation is psychological war. Mm -hmm. And when you inflict the fatal blow psychologically on your counterparty, it's game over, even if they don't yet know it. Mm -hmm. Wow. Okay. I want to go on, on to the psychological war uh, component. And right. I, I think, David, if it's okay with you, I want to spend just sort of our, our remaining time together looking at both from a business perspective, but also from a personal perspective, because obviously there's negotiations in everyday life, conflict resolution being one of the ones that you alluded to earlier. Uh, let's go down the business route first, because there's a lot of people listening to this uh, podcasts that are business owners, um, yeah. tech companies, but also, uh, you know, in finance, et cetera, in a, a negotiation in regards to business and just bringing up the one that you just alluded to, uh, the roles that, uh, the roles that various people play, whether it be, uh, your general counsel, uh, you know, can we just go through sort of the role of the general counsel, possibly the role of the executive within a negotiation? Because I imagine that there are a couple of entrepreneurs here saying like, hey, I could do the negotiation myself. Um, But what are the importance of those people? And why can't we just hire somebody from external counsel, for instance? 
After I get married, I'm going to Portugal for a couple of weeks. Then from there, I'm going to the United States for one, potentially two months. What does that mean for my routines? I just dropped a bomb in them. They're all gone. In fact, I have to adjust and make new routines when I'm on the road. And how do you keep fit? How do you build muscle while you're on the road and bouncing from place to place, time zone to time zone, et cetera, et cetera? The device I'm going to be chucking in my carry-on bag is the B-Strong. Blood flow restriction training has made my life a hell of a lot easier when it comes to traveling. I get an effective workout in 10 to 20 minutes, and I even come back from my vacations looking sometimes better than I did when I was here. So I don't miss out on the fitness. I put on muscle, and it takes up very little space in my carry-on bag. What's wrong with that? Get yours at bestrong.training and use the code BOOMER for 10% off. Mm. So a lot of good questions there. So Yeah, I just layered them on you. <laughs> so. yeah. yeah. So let's let's just uh, define a fictional C-suite for the moment mm-hmm. uh, of, of no such thing as an average company, but the average size company. So you've got, let's say, four people in the C-suite, at least, maybe five. CEO, COO, um, CTO, CFO. I'll, I'll throw in a GC. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's a pretty small uh, cadre. It's possible that the best negotiator in that group could be any one of those players. Um an experienced GC should be in contention for being one of the best negotiators, but that's not always the case. And sometimes you have a young GC who's really good with the law, but may not be your best negotiator. Mm-hmm. Uh, I definitively prefer not having the CEO be the lead negotiator because you want not, even if they are the best negotiator, because you want them to be the authority figure so that they are distanced from the person doing the speaking so they can countermand, supersede, or change uh, with their authority something that somebody else said. But if the CEO says it at the table, it ha- it, be- it gains the patina of being binding when it comes out of the mouth of the CEO. Gotcha. That's why you you don't want the CEO, even, even if they're brilliant. Uh, I think that's just a good rule of thumb to have. So... Uh, in an instance where you don't have a shining negotiator uh, in your C-suite, you might want to hire a very senior, experienced outside lawyer to be the lead negotiator, particularly if it's going to be a tough one because they get to play bad cop a little bit more. And they don't, by being an outside lawyer attached to XYZ law firm, they can be tough, but when the deal is done, they're out of the picture and they haven't, the damage has not really landed on the parties per se. If it's the VP, the the chief technology officer who's playing uh, a very aggressive hardball role in the negotiation, after a deal is done and the CTO then has to spend the next year in meetings with the counterparty's CTO and he was a jerk Mm -hmm. in the negotiation, that negative is going to flow through the deal. It's going to flow through, if it's an acquisition, it's going to flow through the integration. Mm -hmm. So sometimes bringing an outside uh, negotiator in tough negotiations 
is the right move. And oftentimes outside counsel is the right person. The reason I hesitate away from that is we had a saying in, uh, I was taught as a trial lawyer that the, 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 if it's at all possible, the way you win a trial is by having one lawyer, the trial lawyer, have the entire case in one head. Mm-hmm. Big cases oftentimes get split out across four or five lawyers. Yeah. And one lawyer will handle this subject area. One lawyer will handle the experts. One lawyer will handle the fact witnesses. Lead counsel will handle opening and closing and objections, et cetera, et cetera. But when you, when you break it up, you naturally uh, distribute the knowledge and things can get missed. When it's all in one mind, the it's harder to do it. But when it's all in one mind, whether it's a trial lawyer or a negotiator, then you can see how things fit in other places in the deal structure. Mm-hmm. And uh, outside counsel is at a serious disadvantage in that regard because they don't live and breathe the business for years on end. They come in and then they come out. Um, and so the reason I favor having somebody out of the C-suite negotiated major deal is for that reason, is they have a deeper understanding of the strengths and weaknesses of the company and its business and its people, and also at the detail level, the strengths and weaknesses of their arguments in this particular negotiation, the pluses and minuses of the deal points. Uh, And so inside the C-suite, it could be any number, it could be even be two people are gonna be negotiating as a team, although there should always be one lead and one second. But the primary reason I like having the lawyer do it, aside from sort of my my obvious bias of being the general counsel myself, is uh, in a way it relieves all of the chief officers of the burden of having to be nice or be conciliatory in in a negotiation. it protects their reputation. So when the deal is done and integration begins, yeah. they are not tainted by, oh, because everybody can just say, oh, that's our asshole lawyer. Mm-hmm. You just got to understand, mm-hmm. you know, you know, he's the devil, but he's our devil. So, you know, look, just ignore him. We'll keep him out of the room as we go forward and do this, uh, you know, do this great flying car project mm-hmm. or something. Uh, so I believe strongly that GC should be, Senior enough GC uh, in-house counsel should be in the C-suite team, um, but they have a different kind of a role to play. Mm-hmm. And one one additional thing is they should know the <laughs> they should know the law uh, specific to the deal uh, and the subject matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so every deal has legal components to it, and so better to have that person involved in the negotiation because of the legalities. Uh, And particularly if the counterparty is putting their lawyer up front Mm -hmm. to negotiate in a deal, you don't want to put a non-lawyer opposite them because the first thing the lawyer do is start uh, flexing their legal muscles, whether it's true or not, they can, they, they, you've given them an inherent knowledge advantage to bamboozle or confuse uh, or get a psychological advantage over the non-lawyer. So if you're going to do non-lawyer 
negotiation, lead negotiator, make sure if you're going to put your CTO up as the lead negotiator, make sure they're going up against a non-lawyer. Insist on it, that it be the, the CTO on the other side or the equivalent. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is, they, the, if the companies are relatively equal size, the, the negotiator should be of equal seniority. Mm-hmm. Don't let your CEO go in and then find themselves, find, you know, Apple was famous for this, sending in a medium level VP to negotiate with the CEO of a vendor. Uh, it creates a terrible uh, playing field at the at the table. So uh, 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 can I double click on that? Because it's just yeah. kind of interesting that uh, you bring up Apple and I've certainly heard of these kind of case studies. And as a lover of game theory, I'm just kind of looking at it and saying, okay, is Apple doing this because they're cocky? Or are they doing it to say like, hey, you know, vendor, we can replace you at any given time? Um, what, what is the angle there? From Apple and, you know, I can see how it would piss off a CEO, certainly. Yeah. And I imagine you can come probably transport that to like Walmart as well, too. Yeah. So I don't, I, I need to be fair to Apple. I, I, I mentioned Apple there just because it was first to mind because uh, a friend of mine who used to be the uh, GC at Intuit um I'm sorry, at Intel, <laughs> did I say into it? The GC at Intel told a story of how they had negotiated. He had negotiated opposite Apple and Apple negotiate has a reputation for negotiating very, very tough. Mm-hmm. And that came from Steve. Mm-hmm. Steve managed the negotiation team from behind the scenes. Yeah. And it was very carefully orchestrated and it was very hard ass. And it was in furtherance, I think, personally, the way I read the story, it was in furtherance of Steve's belief in uh, brand includes reputation. Yeah. (laughs) And so uh, the way the story was told to me is Steve would always, Steve was the closer. Mm -hmm. He would come into the room uh, when the parties got stuck and the parties would get stuck because he instructed them to get stuck. Mm-hmm. And then Steve would come in and use his, uh, you know, famous force field uh, di- uh, distortion, reality distortion field. Yeah. I think they used to call yeah, it. Yeah, that's what which, Walter Isaacson called it in the biography, right? So I've never experienced it, but mm-hmm. the but the my my friend uh, from Intel said it's true. He was in the room. He said it is undeniably true, uh, and it's amazing to watch. And he comes in and. You know, it's the, you know, these aren't the droids you're looking for kind of forced and the deal gets done. Mm-hmm. So that's how Apple does it. That's the only reason I pick on Apple here uh, at this moment. Mm-hmm. But when I was in a small startup uh, in my first GC job, we always talked about dealing with the 800 pound gorilla. Mm-hmm. The 800 pound gorilla could be, like you said, Walmart, could be Apple, could be, uh, this is before Facebook. Uh, or Google for us, it was double click was the 800 pound gorilla, but mm-hmm. um, there is a different strategy to take with the 800 pound gorilla. They will always make you believe that there's a bunch of other vendors that they could just as easily go to as you. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's almost never true. Mm-hmm. If they're at the table with you, if the 800 pound uh, gorilla is at the table with you, 
there must be something that they want. I'd say 10% of the time they're using you as a stalking horse when they intend to do a deal with somebody else. Mm-hmm. But 90% of the time they're interested in something that you have that fits a lacuna in their system, but they're not going to tell you that. But you have to assume that if they're at the table, then there must be something they want and that you have that others don't. So this, going back to the basics, uh, is the difference between power and leverage. Mm -hmm. And I like this little story about the difference between power and leverage because everybody understands it. (laughs) And this story, I think, is in Shell's book also, but I'm sure preceded Shell's book, which is uh, imagine yourself home at night at the dinner table and you're trying to get your six-year-old daughter to eat her vegetables. Mm-hmm. She doesn't want to eat her vegetables and you want her to eat her vegetables. Now, in this scenario, power is the power of the parent over the child, not just physical strength. I mean, that's the least of it. Mm-hmm. The power of putting a roof over the head educating, feeding, clothing, uh, protecting the child. All of the power is with the parent. What the child has in refusing to eat the vegetables is leverage. Mm -hmm. By holding out and not eating the vegetables, the child's leverage increases to a point until they get sent to their room. It increases to a point. That's leverage. And curiously, the more the parent insists on the child eating their vegetables, the more that leverage goes up. And so uh, usually the child will cut a deal. Uh, You know, I get dessert or an extra half hour TV time. And the parent will say, yeah, if you eat the vegetables, swoop, the vegetables are gone and child won the negotiation. But that to me is the distinction between power and leverage. So when you're when you're a small company dealing with 800 pound gorilla, the thing to remember is they have the power, but uh, you can create leverage. And the more reticence you show, which is unusual to show to a company of power, you can tease out how much they really want what you have. Mm-hmm. And the more they show their hand about how much they want what you have, the more leverage you have and the more you can level the playing field with respect to the deal terms. Now, sometimes you just can't develop leverage. Sometimes as the small guy, you just have to take the deal that's offered to you. If you're a a new product and you want to get on the shelves of Walmart, you just take the deal and you hope that your product speaks uh, to the customer And that's where you gain your leverage Mm -hmm. for the next negotiation. Um, So I went off track there a little bit. So why don't you reel me in and take me where you wanted me to go? David, that was fascinating. And so I want to just kind of, because we're coming up here on time and I want to before, and I know that you and I are going to have multiple conversations in the future because we didn't even get to uh, design thinking in its relation to this, but uh, when it comes to things like conflict resolution and yeah. just sort of the personal uh, element of negotiation, what are thing basic tips that are not, not even basic tips, but like things that people should be doing better in uh, negotiations? Because conflict resolution happens everywhere. For instance, uh, relationships, whatever it is. Uh, what are 
sort of the elements that you kind of witness either walking down the street or with your students, et cetera, that you say like, hey, we should be doing this differently? Yeah. Um, so specific to conflict revolution, and let's so generally speaking, stay in the personal realm. Mm -hmm. uh, I would say preparation. There doesn't have to be this, not the same kind of preparation you would do for a commercial negotiation, but preparation in the sense of really thinking about the issue that you want to address. There's a really good book, by the way, by Sheila Heen, H-E-E-N, called Difficult Conversations, has almost entirely to do with managing difficult conversations in the personal context. Um, and uh, I would add, in addition to thinking about the issue, the difficulty of a conversation that you plan to have, which will be conflict resolution, but... Uh, Sometimes I like to think of them as difficult conversations because it takes the conflict piece out of it. It focuses on the communication. Um, really challenging yourself to think from a 360 degree perspective, uh, the issues at hand. And that means viewing it in your from your own point of view, which is sort of the default assumption for every one of us. We think about it from our own point of view first, and then really exercise your empathy to see it from your counterparty's side. So if I'm gonna have a difficult conversation with my wife, for example, I try really hard to see it through her eyes, even if I don't agree with the words that she had said uh, or, uh, the position that she took. I still try and absorb as best as I can how she sees the world. Not necessarily because I'm going to convince myself to agree with her, but that gives me the opportunity to shape what I'm going to say in a way that it fits better with her view of the world, lock and key kind of concept. Mm -hmm. And then here we go to timing. I can't emphasize it enough pick the right time to have the conversation. And oftentimes that's not a particular time of day or the week. Oftentimes it's a read of your counterparty's emotional state and whether or not they're prepared to have the conversation, mm -hmm. to hear what you have to say. Mm -hmm. And then thirdly, this is another whole area that, that I talk a lot about in class. Um, and I've become more and more uh, every day almost aware of. Uh, and once you start thinking in these terms, it becomes very apparent. Word choice. Mm -hmm. uh, most of us speak in day-to-day -day conversation uh, off the cuff quickly, and we're not consciously choosing our words. We kind of use words that we're, that, that we're used to, that we're comfortable with, that nobody seems to be terribly offended with, uh, we use a basic vocabulary, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm not saying you got to go get esoteric words. No, that's not what I'm saying. But just certain words can trigger positive reaction and other words can trigger negative reaction. And in the midst of a difficult conversation, remember, just like the tennis, the, the most important tennis point, sometimes these key words, these trigger words have such outsized importance in a difficult conversation that choosing which word to use uh, 
makes all the difference in getting getting the communication, the conversation to move forward on a path of resolution than allowing it to get distracted or uh, uh, sideswiped by somebody taking umbrage at some word that I used. Mm-hmm. And it can be a pretty simple word. I'm not thinking of an example right now, but every one of us can think of an example where we said something to a significant other or spouse. I go, oh man, I wish I hadn't used that word. That just, you know. I mean, and even choice of pronouns, right? Like it's yeah. You know, yeah. simple things like yeah. that can really just yeah. piss people off. Yeah. And so uh, I tend to, you probably already noticed, I tend to have hesitance in uh, my speaking, and that's a little bit of a bad habit, but it also is a habit that I learned because it gives me an opportunity to be somewhat conscious, somewhat uh, deliberate about the words that I want to use in the next phrase, in the next sentence. In negotiation, it works really well. Uh, and in trials, it works really well. I started trying cases in the day when court reporters took down, and they still do, took down the words verbatim on paper. So a pause doesn't really show up. So I can stop in the middle of the sentence and then keep going, having chosen my words carefully, but it just reads as a simple sentence. And, you know, that's the skill trial lawyers learn uh, how to speak written English. Mm -hmm. (laughs) How to speak written English is... Uh, and it sound, it's sometimes it's why we sound stilted because we're we're re- basically dictating complete sentences for the paper as opposed to having an oral conversation with with friends. Mm-hmm. But I digress. So the the I think the real takeaway, in a nutshell, for difficult conversations with family and friends is. Uh, Empathy for the other side's point of view, however, uh, you may not agree with it. At least empathize so you understand it. Shape your overall strategic statement to fit their understanding of the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't necessarily ask them to abandon their understanding of the world. Uh, but at the same time, explain your understanding of the world and invite them to explain their understanding of the world uh, in a kind, and I can't emphasize this is how I start every class in negotiation since I started. The rules are kindness and honesty. Mm-hmm. We're going to be honest with one another in our communication, but we're going to be kind in doing so. Mm-hmm. And to me, that that gets you 85, 90% of the way to avoiding mistakes in having a difficult conversation. And I think mistakes are the biggest problem in difficult conversations, not the subject matter of the conversation itself, but the mistakes that get made in trying to have the difficult conversation, which sends it off the rails because the tensions are already so high. Mm-hmm. Brilliant. David, this is fascinating. I- I want to wrap things up with just a final couple of questions. Think of these as rapid fire. All right. What's your top trick for enhancing your focus? For enhancing my focus? The way I think about it is heightened awareness. Mm -hmm. Uh, I want, in, in instances where I want to heighten my awareness, normally what I do 
uh, and I do this for sports as well when I'm trying to get in the zone because it's basically the same thing. Uh, I try to, wherever I am physically, I try to shut out the noise. Uh, and it may be noise inside my head. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the advantages of learning how to meditate a little bit is that you can on command shut down the inside inner voice mm-hmm. because that's the biggest obstacle to allowing your mind to do what it does so well mm-hmm. uh, and achieve heightened awareness. And I kind of amplify that's probably not the right word. I focus on my ears. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, like when you go stand in the woods and you you want to listen and you quiet your mind and focus on what you're hearing, sometimes closing your eyes, you'll start to realize there are things you can hear in the woods that you wouldn't hear if you were just walking down the trail thinking about yesterday's crazy stress. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what I need to achieve heightened awareness, it's quiet the mind and listen carefully. Book which has most impacted your life? I'm going to go way back. There's a lot of them, but I'm going to go way back because it jumps to mind. I can't help it. Uh, It's called The Glass Bead Game by Herman Hesse. Um, He's famous for, is it Siddhartha? Is he is famous for Siddhartha, yeah. yeah. But Glass Bead Game was one that really affected me uh when I was younger. Uh, and you know, it's been a long time since I read it, but basically it's it's the narrative fictional story that exists solely for the purpose of explaining a philosophy of life that is uh a blend of calm emotion, high intellect, and uh, sort of like a Buddhist Taoist peace in the world. Mm. Yeah. Where can people find out more about you, David? Uh, I have a bio on the Stanford faculty directory page. It's an easy Google search. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm up on LinkedIn. Uh, if you want to, see what I'm saying at any given moment, you can go to Twitter and, and chase me down. It's just Johnson at Johnson underscore David W. Cause it's a very common name. Um, and I'll probably be saying something sharp about the politics of the day. Uh, but I am in the process of uh, writing a book uh, on climate uh issues and design thinking as applied to climate issues. So I'm going to start uh, spending my time on Twitter, at least, and probably also LinkedIn, uh, focusing on design thinking and climate activism for the next year or so. Well, you've just kind of hinted at what our next conversation is going to be about. So (laughs) David, thank you so much for taking the time today. This is absolutely enlightening and I, I can't wait to have you back. Uh, I appreciate. I uh, I really enjoyed it. You asked great questions, and uh, and I feel simpatico with your sort of demeanor and uh, your calm all, all the way on the other side of the world in Amsterdam. <laughs> uh, 
So uh, I appreciate the, the way you managed it and the way you ran it. And uh, I look forward to our next conversation. We cut that conversation short without even discussing David's class negotiation by design. I look forward to conversing with him in the future, and I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. If you did, head on over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to your shows and leave a five-star rating. Each one of those helps, and hell, I'll even read them on the show very soon. But David was an epic person to learn from, and I hope you got a lot out of this conversation because I know I did. The show notes for this one are decodingsuperhuman.com slash negotiation and have an absolutely epic day.